History is full of decisive moments, turning points, those events which, had they unfolded differently, might have changed the course of the future. It's often a fun exercise to imagine what if. What if Alexander the Great had lived into old age? What if the fog had not rolled in and allowed George Washington and his army to escape after being beaten badly at the Battle of Long Island? What if Hitler had never risen to power? And what if Churchill would have made peace instead of standing firm? Kevin DeYoung opens his recently released book on men and women in the church, which I highly commend to you, with an entertaining anecdote that asks just that question. What if? This is what he writes. Kaiser Wilhelm II was the king of Prussia and the last German emperor. Reigning from June 1888 to November 1918, Wilhelm was an ambitious, volatile, and aggressive ruler whose policies in Europe were partly to blame for World War I. In 1889, when Wilhelm had barely been on the throne for a year, a special event was taking place at Berlin's Charlottenburg Racecourse, Buffalo Bill's Wild West Show. The show had arrived from America and was touring all over Europe. At one point in the show, Annie Oakley announced that she was going to shoot the ashes off the end of a cigar with her Colt 45. Then, as was her custom, she asked if anyone from the audience would like to volunteer to hold that cigar question was, of course, meant as a joke, and people would laugh, and then when nobody came forward, eventually Annie would have her husband hold the cigar just like he always did. But this time, at the Berlin racecourse, after Annie made the announcement, an important man stepped out from the royal box and volunteered to hold the cigar. It was Kaiser Wilhelm. Some German policemen tried to stop him, but he waved them off. With a mixture of hubris, courage, and stupidity, Wilhelm insisted on holding the cigar. Annie Oakley couldn't back out now, so she paced off her usual distance and prepared to shoot. And what happened next? Well, according to one historian, sweating profusely, under her buckskin, and regretful that she had consumed more than her usual amount of whiskey the night before, Annie raised her colt, took aim, and blew away Wilhelm's ashes. Years later, after the First World War, Annie Oakley wrote to Wilhelm, asking if she could have a second shot. He never replied. One historian goes on to wonder how the world might have been different if Annie had not needed a second shot. If she had missed the cigar and creased the Kaiser's head instead. Perhaps an entire world war, maybe two, would have been avoided. Small, ordinary moments can have long-lasting implications. History hangs on little moments that occur in the ordinary. And friends, here we are at an ordinary gathering of the church, if the gathering of God's people can be described in such a small way as ordinary. We are gathered, and I want you to know that if God has brought you here this morning, he has brought you to such a moment in your biography, a moment that is seemingly small, but has great ramifications. Non-Christian, what if God intends to change the entire course of your life today? What if he intends to make you a Christian? 
What if you choose to follow Christ? My prayer is that one day you will look back on this day full of gratitude and awe, asking yourself, what if God hadn't captured my heart? What if I hadn't have put my faith in Jesus? Oh, praise God for what I thought was a small and ordinary day. Christian, what if God intends to amplify your view of his love today? To swell your heart with joy at knowing you are his beloved. My prayer is that one day you will look back on this day full of gratitude and awe, asking yourself, what if God hadn't loved me? What if God hadn't granted me a deeper understanding of his love? Oh, friend, you come this morning to a moment. You come to Ephesians chapter 2, which gives description to the biography shared by all Christians and to the story of God bringing life out of death. These 10 verses give to us the gospel. We'll cover the first 10 verses of chapter 2. And, and the big idea of this section is, is made explicit for us in verses 8 and 9. Right? By grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one, that is, no one may boast. No one can take any credit for their salvation because it's not the result of works. It's the gift of God. Now, what we hope to accomplish this morning and over the next few weeks is to answer some of the questions that I think will help us gain a better understanding of this text. We want to talk about the why, the what, and the how of salvation accomplished by God for his people. And we want to, we, words we think are hooks that you can hang ideas on. And so I've tried to answer each, each question in, in a word. So, so why has God saved his people? This is the subject of today's sermon. Because of his great love. So the answer is, is love. Why has God saved his people? Love. What has God given to his people in salvation? Life. That's next week and then. Following week, we'll answer the question, how does God accomplish our salvation? In the word there is grace. And so these three words are going to, to sort of frame the sermon the next few weeks. Of course, you could answer all those questions with just the name Jesus. But we're going to use these three words and frame our sermons accordingly. And these questions, of course, are answered after we uh, answered the question that Dan raised and answered for us last week. Which is, what do we need saved from? Right? And the answer is wrath, specifically God's wrath. And so, so this morning, the plan is to look at the bones of this section and then backtrack and sit ourselves down in verse 4. Our main idea is this. God saves his people because he is rich in mercy and loves with a great love. I want to exhort you to meditate on the love of God. Outline is there before you. Let's pray and begin. Father, we come to you from different places and different experiences and um, different postures this morning. Some of us come happily on the heels of a, a banner week, ready to hear from you, hungry and thirsty for your word. O others of us struggled to get out of bed, struggled all week long, and are desperately hoping for some encouragement and to experience a little bit more of your love and your grace. We thank you that for all of us, we've come to the right place this morning. 
We thank you that you are faithful, that your steadfast love endures forever, and that even when we fail and falter, you love us. We thank you for your word. And we pray that you would apply it to our hearts now by your spirit. And we ask that you would make your spirit present. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This section is spectacular and worthy of prolonged meditation, as evidenced by our four or so sermons dedicated to the passage. It is my conviction that if you want to get a sense of what God is like, you ought to saturate yourself with this passage. I know it's likely familiar to you, but so often it's the case that our familiarity with parts of the Bible keeps us from feeling the full force of their weight. And as a result, we're not, we're not moved to worship as we ought. And so let's try to look at the passage with fresh eyes this morning. Work through the text quickly before returning to settle down in verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. As Dan underscored last week, Paul is teaching us about humanity's spiritual condition and eternal destiny apart from faith in Christ. The text illumines for us the three facts about man's natural disposition as it relates to God. All of us, apart from Christ, are dead, disciples of Satan, and doomed to eternal death under God's wrath. And that doesn't sound like good news at all, but as Dan said last week, you know, you keep going and the ending will redeem the whole thing. But before we move on to that beautiful conjunction in verse 4 and all that follows, let, let's make sure we have a good handle on what it means for faithless humanity to be dead and doomed disciples of Satan. He is saying that we, apart from Christ, are dead. And that seems strange to us, does it not? Like some of you are sitting there going, that doesn't make any sense. I woke up this morning, you know, I put pants on, drove here, I'm alive! But Paul, of course, is saying our spiritual condition before God is dead. We have no relationship with him, no hope of being reconciled to him. Then we are dead dead. But I know the Princess Bride should have won an Oscar. That might be dated. I don't know if everybody knows Princess Bride anymore. But there's no such thing as being just a little dead. Right? Y'all remember the scene? A little dead. We're not a little dead in this picture here. We are dead dead. And that reality pulls the rug out of one of our favorite trite Christian cliches. Well, don't you know God helps those who help themselves? Wrong. No one can help themselves. God brings dead people to life. And he doesn't need the help of the dead to do it. The idea that Paul is teaching here that we are dead and that we cannot make ourselves alive to God, theologically speaking, is called total depravity. Well, what that means is just what Paul has said here. It means that we are dead in our sins. 
But what, what did dead people do? Nothing. They rot. Their bodies get eaten out by worms and, and stuff. Dead people don't do anything. This truth also undermines some well-intended but misguided illustrations. Illustrations you've probably heard before about the gospel. Let me, let me try, try one. You've probably heard it. The gospel is like you are in the ocean drowning. And the waves have tore, put you under multiple times. And you're coming up and water's beginning to, to fill your lungs. But there's God on the lifeboat. And he sees you in the water drowning for help. You can't swim. And then, with Aaron Rodgers-like accuracy, he throws out a life preserver. And it lands right next to your hand. But in order to be saved, you have to, you have to grab the life preserver. And then you'll be saved. It's up to you! Or try this one. A woman is desperately sick. Her condition is, is not improving. She's terminal. She's getting close to taking her last breaths. But there's a great physician there. And he, he mix up, mixes up a panacea that can heal her. And, and he takes the, the medicine and he, he brings it to her lips. And it can heal her. But she must drink if she is to be made well. Her salvation, her life is, this is up to her. Friends, if we believe the Bible, if we believe what Paul says here, if we believe God's word, those illustrations are patently false. We are not as drowning men and women. We are as dead men and women. We are not simply sick. We have already died. We need God to make us alive. Dead people don't do anything. We need God. We cannot shock our own hearts back into rhythm. We cannot put life into our own lungs. God must call out to us through his word in the same way Jesus called out to Lazarus, come forth. And we must rise. Salvation is the work of God. We are dead. And we are disciples of Satan. We follow the course of this world. What does that mean? What well, means that we disobey God's word and we like disobeying God's word? Like, we sin because we're sinners and we like sin. We love it. We, we stiff-arm God and we hold fast to our sin apart from the work of God. And this ultimately leads to death stretched out across eternity. You, you'll notice in the text, dead people walk. It's kind of a fun um, oxymoronic statement, right? Dead people are walking and walk is a really important verb in Ephesians. You're going to see here you have walk at the front end, that you walk according to the pattern of this world. And then if you look down in verse 10, uh, we're created for good works in Christ Jesus, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then later in the second half of Ephesians, Paul is going to tell us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to walk like Jesus. Because you actually can divide Ephesians into these two sections, first three chapters are about our identity in Christ and what God has done. And then chapters four through six are about what God calls us to do, the actions that we are to take in light of our identity in Christ. And so you have indicative followed by imperative. And right here, what Paul is saying is that your default position is dead. And that in your deadness... You are a disciple of Satan. You walk according to the pattern of the world. You love sin. And that sin leads ultimately to your eternal doom. Because you are by nature, all of us, are children of wrath. Children 
of wrath. That means kind of like, like father, like son. Right? Your, your first parents are do the wrath of God if you want to go all the way back to Adam and Eve. And consequently, you are like them. You too have participated in their rebellion. You are due wrath. The inheritance that you are owed is the wrath of God. And it's really interesting if you look back at chapter 1. Right? We are by nature children of wrath. But what is Paul telling the saints in Ephesus? What is he telling us back in chapter 1 and verse 5? That God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. And so you see the contrast. Once God has saved his people, they're adopted into his family as sons. No longer children of wrath. Our default position is not, everybody you meet is not, strictly speaking, a child of God. There's a sense in which all of us are made in God's image, certainly. But not all of us enjoy a familial relationship with God. We're all children of wrath until he adopts us in Christ. We are due wrath. That's our inheritance. And again, you can contrast that with the inheritance Paul speaks about in verse 11 in chapter 1. In him, in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We, we trust in Christ and we get all these things that we absolutely have no business having. We're not there yet, though. Here in the first three verses, we see that we are dead in sin. We are due the wrath of God. Unless we be tempted to shake our heads at God, we must recognize that God's wrath is his right response to evil. God doesn't see evil and sweep it under the rug. He resolves to deal with it. Don't Don't look around at the world and the evil you see in it and mistake that evil as evidence that God is not there. Rather, recognize it as evidence of God's patience and his kindness. Evil is no problem for God. He's going to deal with it. Fully and finally, on the last day, And here's the problem. You and I are evil. You and I are due God's wrath. We are hopeless, helpless. And so we come to verse 4. Before we, before we get there, the non-Christian, isn't this the opposite of what the world tells you? Like, haven't you been raised up, I know I was, to believe that that all people are basically good? You know, if we just have a little bit more therapy, a little bit more education, if we can just make society a better place, well then we can kind of create our own utopia here. Man isn't really the problem, it's the environment he's in, and so we can fix this. My friend, has that proven true in your experience? Have not world wars and genocide and racism and greed and pornography and even the recent shootings over the past month proven to you just the opposite? Have not your own sins and your own sinful thoughts proven to you that you're not basically good? Hasn't that myth been debunked for you? You have to ask yourself a question. Will you believe what God says about your spiritual condition or what dead people have said about your spiritual condition? Do not put your hope in the dead. Put your hope in the one who has defeated death. In the one who makes dead people come to life. Verse 4. But God, 
focus shifts from the creature to the creator. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here's the controlling verb of the section, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him. And he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not the result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are dead. There's nothing attractive in us. We are unlovely, rotting corpses. And then we come to verse 4, but God. God makes us alive together with Christ. And do you see the scandal of this? makes us alive together with his own son who did everything absolutely right, who, in whom there was no sin. He makes us alive together with Christ, loves us, raises us up with Christ, and seats us with him in heavenly places. Oh my. That is a current reality for you, Christian. I can't wait to, to talk more about that. Next week, God makes us alive in Christ. We are headed for hell, but God. Now, if we have any sense, we'll, we'll be confronted with this truth and we will ask, why? What prompts God to love dead people like this? Nevertheless, I think many of us don't ask the question, why? You know, from, from the time we're very little, we're told that, that we're all snowflakes, there's no one like you, all of us are above average somehow, really special and unique, and that's quite true as far as it goes. But our, our kind of default posture is we believe that God ought to love us. That God owes us his love. And so we read a passage like this and we, we go, well, that makes perfect sense. After all, really, I'm a good person. No, I'm kind of cute. I have friends. But I'm at least as good as the next guy. And, hey, God is love. God's love, man, is all just love. So I'm all right. You're all right. We're all all right. This is the epitome of arrogance. It's misguided. God does not owe us his love. He owes us his wrath. We should be surprised that God saves us from God's wrath by God's Son for God's glory. That's the gospel. God saves us from God's wrath by God's Son for God's glory. It's all about God. And so we do come to that question, why does he love us like this? Look at, you can turn, I don't turn there, just listen. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the blood that turns God's wrath away from us. He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is love. This is mercy. And did you see this? God being 
rich in mercy. I love this picture. God is wealthy in mercy. He has oceans of mercy welling up within him, and he dispenses that mercy onto a people who do not deserve it. God is rich in mercy. He's got deep pockets, and he's a big spender, friends. He gets a twinkle in his eyes when sinners come before him longing for salvation. He delights to forgive. He is so merciful. And his mercy doesn't come at the expense of his judgment, at the expense of his justice. How does God forgive sinners and uphold justice? And the answer is the cross. It is at the cross God's justice and mercy meet and kiss. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, goes and dies on Calvary's tree in your place for your sin. God imputes to Jesus, credits Jesus with all the sins you ever committed or ever will commit. The punishment due our sin is poured out on him. And all of Jesus' right doing, all of Jesus' righteous living, his goodness is credited to us. This is how God adopts us into his family. This is how God forgives sins. And God raises Jesus up from the dead, proving that Jesus' sacrifice was effective and promising to raise us up from the dead also. This is good news. Oh, oh, mercy. Rich in mercy. And his mercy is an expression of his love. We can drink from the fountain of God's love, which pours out mercy because of the blood that flows forth from Emmanuel's veins. It's because of Christ we can know God's mercy. It's because of Christ that we can know God's love. Friends, God's love is so great. It's so great that whatever we experience of it, there's always more. There's always more. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. There's always more love in God than there is sin in you. How, how does God love like this? We get a picture of it in the, the book of Hosea. If you remember, Hosea is a prophet and he has a really, it's kind of a tough deal, I think. God comes to him and says, hey, your love life is actually going to serve as a parable of my relationship with Israel. And so what I want you to do is I want you to go out and marry a woman who's definitely going to betray you and run around on you, and I want you to love her anyway. It's tough. If you know how the story goes, Hosea does this. He marries a common whore named Gomer, sires a couple kids by her, and then she runs around on him. She goes after the balls and all the, the false idols. She loves the ways of the world. And she rebuffs and doesn't recognize all that she has comes from Hosea. Nevertheless, Hosea loves her. There comes a point where she's either enslaved or somehow owned by her current lover, and God tells Hosea, go and buy Gomer back. Buy her to yourself. And Hosea goes and he redeems Gomer out of her slavery. Now, why? Nothing lovely in Gomer. All she's brought him is heartache. She's not lovely. She's ugly. Who loves like this? God. God loves like this. 
not anything lovely or worthy in us, but God resolves to love us. Why? Because He wants to. Because He chooses to. This is a love that is incomprehensible. In fact, Paul prays that we might understand it in verse 14 of chapter 3. He says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the kind of love our capacities cannot comprehend without a divine work. Let's pray that God would enlarge our hearts so that we might be fuller, have a fuller understanding of the love that he has lavished on us, his people. Why, why does God love us like this? I think sometimes we, we don't want to go to, well, because he chooses to. Because he, he's love and he's decided to. Instead, we, we want to try to pretend like there's something lovely in us or that there's something lacking in God. Maybe you've heard this. God created the world and all the people that are in it because he needed someone to love. God was just incomplete without you. Wrong. God is love. He's always existed in perfect fellowship with himself. Our God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has always been and will always be supremely happy in and of Himself. Created for His glory. Not because there's, there's anything lacking in Him or because there's anything lovely in you. So, so get rid of of that caricature you have of God that makes him to play the role of Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire, right? Again, that might be dated too. I'm getting middle-aged now. You should still know it. Right, it's the one he comes in and Renee Zellweger's like, shut up, you had me at hello. You can Google it. God is not rolling into your life like Tom Cruise and going, you complete me. I was, I was just... I was, couldn't be happy without you. I just needed you. No! You are not Renee Zellweger. Or even Danny DeVito. You're dead. You're Gomer. God loves you and brings you out of death and into life. Because he chooses to. His love for you, Christian, is not contingent upon you. It's his work. It's his decision. Why does God choose to bring us out of death and into life? Maybe, maybe an illustration. Do you know the story of Pinocchio? I kind of do. I'm probably going to butcher it, so you'll just have to bear with me. But, but Geppetto loves this puppet that he made out of dead wood. And this fairy shows up. She's like, Geppetto likes this puppet. I'm going to make this puppet come to life. And Pinocchio becomes like a living puppet. And then eventually a real boy, if I remember the story correctly. Probably should have researched a little better on this. In the Bible, God plays both the role of the fairy and of Geppetto. There's nothing lovely in us but he decides to love us and make us come to life. 
Right? Pinocchio is nothing more than a dead block of wood. But Geppetto loves him and gives him life anyway. Of course, this, this illustration breaks down in a lot of places, specifically that we're not morally neutral. We're actually in rebellion against God. But still, you get the point. We don't earn God's love. He dispenses it to us freely. God saves his people because he is rich in mercy and loves them with a great love. We were lifeless and dead like Pinocchio, ugly and unlovely like Gomer, but God. So somebody asks you the question, why are you a Christian? The answer should never start, because I. If somebody asks you why you're a Christian, the answer ought to be, because God. God did this. I couldn't have done it. I'm a sinner. But God has brought me to life. I couldn't make myself alive to God. God has made me alive. Yes, yes, of course, the Bible holds out those complementary and compatible twin truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Humans are agents responsible for the decisions they make, and non-Christian, I exhort you to put your faith in Christ this morning. But what you'll find, if you do put your faith in Christ, is You'll get down the road of faith a little bit and you'll look back and you'll realize, I didn't do that. That light that was coming on in my heart was the work of God. He caused me to be born again. I needed an antecedent work of God before I could believe in God. After all, faith, my faith was a gift from Him. I can't take any credit for my salvation. It's all his. This brings us to our last last item of consideration this morning. Who is the us in verse 4? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Who is the us? Is it everybody in all of creation? I don't think so. There's a specific content to this love. The us is God's people, His church. See, not all people have faith in Christ. Not everyone knows God. Many dead people are not brought to life. You see, the implication is that the great love of God that makes someone alive is a unique love which is expressed only to God's elect, those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. I'm not denying God's benevolent love towards all of creation and towards all people. God certainly loves the world. But he does not love all the same. It's obvious that he loves his own in a very special way. For example, this is how things work in your own life. As Christians, we are to love everyone generally, right? And I'll use myself, I do that to, you know, better sometimes than others. I'm supposed to love all. But the Bible calls me to love especially the household of faith, especially other Christians, with a love that is different and greater than the general love I'm to have for other people. And friends, I love you, I I love this church, I love what God has done and is doing here I think it's just such an exciting time in the life of our church. Love you all. But there's a distinct and greater and special love that I have 
or my family. I love my family differently from the way I love you all. And if I didn't, that would be problematic. And even inside of my family, my wife has the highest priority in regards to the hierarchy of my love. I love her in a way that is distinct and unique from everyone else. And if I didn't, that would be problematic. After all, Genesis says, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. 1 Corinthians 11 says, she is my glory. If I don't love my wife with a special and unique love, I'm going to be in marriage counseling. I love my wife in a way I don't love my kids or any of you. And it's entirely appropriate, even though she's somewhere rolling her eyes right now. You see, God likewise has a special and unique love for his people. When Jesus dies on the cross, he's not dying without any guarantees. He's not shedding his blood and dying for you know, some unknown John Doe. Hoping that, hey, somebody will just eventually exercise faith even though they're dead in sin and they'll come to me and live. Maybe just one person, maybe somebody will come and have faith in me and be saved from death. That's not what he's doing when he dies. When Jesus dies on the cross, brother, sister, he was dying for you. When Jesus was dying on the cross, He was not at risk of being swindled, of paying for something he wasn't going to receive. No, no, no. When Jesus dies on the cross, he dies knowing he's going to get the bride that he has purchased. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We come to the takeaway. Christian, this is vital for you to understand, lest you misunderstand the love of God and devalue it. God loves you differently than he loves the person who is in blatant rebellion against him, who hates him. He loves you with a special familial love, a saving love that brought you from death to life. He loves you with a kind of love a father has for a son. He loves you with the same kind of love that is reserved for a spouse. Both of these images are meant to portray to us something of the unfathomable love that God has for us, for his people. God loves you, his church, specially, not because you are special, but because you're his. This means that you can have great assurance. You're never in danger of losing the love of God. If you're genuinely converted, if your faith is in Christ, you can't lose the love of God. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Be assured, be secure in the love God has for you. Secondly, from this passage, we should learn no one has a boring testimony. Sometimes I'll hear Christians say, yeah, I was, I was converted from the age 6 or 12 or, you know, I was really not that bad and then I got converted in my mid-20s and kind of boring, but, you know, I believed in Christ. It's just not, that's not a boring testimony. It's a miracle. You were dead and God made you alive. It's miraculous. Meditate on the love God has for you. 
contemplate it. What if, what if you would be so secure in God's love for you that you would never doubt it again? Oh, I pray that you would be. I pray that you would grasp hold of this great love with which God has loved you this morning, brother and sister. His love is spectacular. Non-Christian. Jesus has said, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. We know that God so loved the world, which is impressive, not because of the world's bigness, but because of the world's badness. So loved the world, he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You can be that whoever who believes in him. I pray that this morning you would put your faith in Christ. What if God intended for you to be here today so that you might become a Christian? My prayer is that you will look back on this day and ask the question, what, where would I be? What if God would not have made me alive? It's amazing, isn't it? God saves his people because of his rich mercy and his great love for them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good and glorious gospel. The truth that we were guilty, vile, and helpless. And you sent Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, to reconcile us to yourself. Thank you for this love pray that you would help us to grasp it. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.